Our sermon text this morning is from Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 5. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 40, if you want to turn there. Isaiah chapter 40, as we finish up our Advent series of the Incarnation in Isaiah. The fifth gospel, they used to call it, because of its constant references to the coming Christ. As you're turning there, let's go ahead and pray. O gracious God, Glory to you in the highest. You've revealed yourself so faithfully through your text to your people throughout the ages, God. And we come and we see this proclamation of comfort that is going to come and comfort through your Son, God. We ask that you would comfort our hearts, that you would comfort our minds, that you would comfort our souls to behold the goodness and the grandeur, and the glory of your Son. Amen. The greatest of things to fall are not empires. We think it's empires. We study church history. We see these looming empires of the Greeks, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the British. We're living through a fall of an empire right now. But the greatest of things are not to fall, are not the empires, but rather, rather the idols within our own hearts. Gideon, as he is called in Judges chapter 6, he's called and his first task is not to attack the Midianites, but rather to tear down the empires or the, the altars that are in the city, the altar to Baal and Asher pole, and they're looming over the people of the city. And here his first call is to tear them down. And he is faithful to do that. But one of the greatest idols that is looming over us as we sit here is comfort. Think of how pervasive it is in our culture. You work 50 years... And why? Yes, to provide for your family, but what's the carrot that's held out before you for all of these 50 to 60 years of labor? What is it? Comfort. You'll have years of comfort at the end. That's what's driving you towards work. Or why do you save all of your money? You scrounge it so that you may pass it on to your children. Why? So that they might have some comfort. As one of you said, I may baptize my children into laziness. Even think of our, our clothing over the last hundred years. 
It's gone from upholding and projecting a degree of civility. I have a plank in my own eye with this one, obviously. It's gone from upholding and projecting a degree of civility to what's our guiding North Star and, and how we dress. It's comfort. What's comfortable? That's what I'm going to wear. Or even where we live now. You don't spend six months going outdoors. Why? Because it's not comfortable. Right? As we think of comfort as, as this state of verb, as it's this being which I'm going to have, that is the state of ease, it's free from pain or free from restriction, and then we think that's what comfort is. But rather, what we're going to see in our text here is that when you get comfort from Christ, the only source of true comfort, what you're going to see is that your comfort has no, it's not the state of verb that you obtain, but rather it's something, it's who you are. You find comfort first in your identity and your identity in God. That he is your God and that you are among the people of God. That's the first part. Number two, you're going to see that comfort is not on the back end of calamity. But with Christ, you have comfort through calamity. It's not on the back end as you look back, but you have comfort through all of this calamity. And then finally, you get to the good part here. Comfort, comfort in Christ. Christ is our true comfort, starting in verses 3, 4, and 5. So let's go into our text here. Verse 1, chapter 40 of Isaiah, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. So what's going on here, what's happening is, is Isaiah is a prophet during four different kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And here he's talking, this is right after his encounter with Hezekiah. Hezekiah is reigning like 716 to 687-ish, give or take a couple years. And the Assyrians have come, in 701 the Assyrians come, and they have 185,000 troops around Jerusalem. The northern kingdom's already gone. It's, it's wiped away. Now it's blank pages in history. The northern kingdom is gone. And now the Assyrians have come these 20 years later, and they have it like a bird in the cage, Sennacherib says. 185,000 troops. And God delivers them, wipes them all out, kills them all in one night. And they are delivered. And Hezekiah is feeling pretty good about himself. So the Babylonians go ahead and send an envoy. You see this in the previous chapter, chapter 39. The Babylonians send an envoy to them. And it says in verse 2 that there is nothing in his house nor in his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. And so this aged prophet now, Isaiah, comes and he talks to Hezekiah and says, where did they come from? Oh, they came from Babylon. Well, what did you show them? I showed him everything in my pride, as if it was mine, as if I would obtain the glory from these people from Babylon. Rather than showing them the goodness of God, he's showing them his own empire. So then Hezekiah responds that all that is in your houses and all that your fathers have laid up and stored to this day will be carried off into Babylon. You want to impress the Babylonians with what you have? Fine, they can have it. And so Hezekiah responds, unfortunately, like many of us, and he says, well, at least there will be peace in my days. My children might get carried off, but there will be peace in my days. 
So you have this, this promise of exile that is given out. And it's coming 120 years before the Babylonians actually come and lay siege and build up a rampart and tear down the city and starve them out and you have women eating their own children. But before all of this affliction, God is giving them the promise and the command of comfort. So often, we'll, as we mentioned, we'll look back, we'll go through a hard season, and then we'll look back and go, well, that wasn't so bad. Or if you're super spiritual and you're reading your psalm of the day, you will know maybe in the midst of this, God is good. If you have your heads about you, you can, you can realize that. But here is the prophet Isaiah giving them a pronouncement before the calamity even begins. 120 years before this promise of exile, he's giving them the promise then of comfort as well. How good is God to his people? The punishment was overlooked. There will be justice and God will not tolerate sin. But before the affliction even begins, the cry and the promise of comfort is going out to God, to God's people. So this cry of comfort, comfort. Okay, so who's he talking to and, and what does he actually mean here? So you notice it's, it's actually an imperative. It's a command in the, in the Hebrew. So what he's not saying is that I'll bring comfort, but Isaiah is actually commanding these future prophets, the current and the future prophets, to proclaim comfort to the people in the midst of their persecution, in the midst of their affliction, and even before it and during it. So Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, you guys, during the fall of this to the Babylonians, be proclaiming comfort to them. Afterwards, Ezekiel, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, after the fall, give them this promise of comfort that will come. The word is translated very well, but it has this essence of, though your sorrow is so deep and you're unable to breathe, and then you're, you're able to breathe again. That's the idea that's going on here. Is that their sorrow is so bad. The affliction is so heavy. They're unable to breathe. And it's repeated again, giving it greater emphasis. It's that, so I see it's just jumping out of the paper, out of the text, and coming to you with this command of comfort and comfort. And up until this point, the, the, whole, the bulk of the book has been judgment. Okay, chapter 7, you've got war against Jerusalem, and the Assyrians are coming. Uh, prophecies about Babylon, they're going to fall. God will use them, they're going to fall. Uh, judgment on Moab, we got that. Um, prophecy of Damascus, Damascus, you're going to fall too. Just keep going. Message to Egypt, you're, you're done. Chapter 19, you're done. Fall of Tyre, 23. Um, judgment upon the earth, in case I missed anything. Let's have a little judgment on the earth in chapter 24. And it goes on and on and on. Judgment against judgment. Judgment upon judgment upon judgment. And then you have comfort. This is the great pivotal point in the book that has happened. You've got judgment and calamity and trial and tribulation, sorrow and exile. And now 
you have comfort and comfort. So look and see who are the ones being comforted here. How are they denoted? My people. It's obviously going back to Hosea 1, hearkening. Hosea is a prophet from the northern kingdom before they're carried off. And one of the, the great pronouncements of judgment is that they're low on me. They're not my people. You are not my people. And here's Isaiah saying, no, you are my people. God says, you are my people. And all that they've been through, think of it. The, as the people of God, the, the wanderings of Abraham as he leaves Ur and he goes to the promised land, but he never settles. And then you have 400 years in Egypt as well, living under the heavy hand of Pharaoh. And how were they known as then? What is their identity while they're in Egypt even? Exodus 3, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. These people are the people of God, and that is their identity. Calamity? Yes. Are you living under the heavy hand of Pharaoh? Absolutely. Are you the child of God? Absolutely. It's not either or. It's both. So not only in their trials, but also then in their rebellion. You see, when they begin to complain with ad about the adversity in Numbers 11. They continue to be the people of God, even as they are carried off into exile. What is their identity? How do they know to themselves? As the people of God, in the midst of affliction, absolutely, but that is still who they are, that they are the people of God. Think of it in your own life. How often have you doubted that you are a child of God, or even loved by Him, because of the affliction that is in your own life? Begin, we begin to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As though it's actually about us, not about Christ. And you have to be careful that you don't allow your identity to change. Our identity is continually that we are people of God, among the people of God. That is our identity. And we allow our, our sufferings then to become markers of our identity, don't we? Who am I? Well, I'm a cancer survivor. That's who I am. Who are you? I'm a divorcee. Or I'm an addict. Or I'm a, now I'm finally sober. Or I'm infertile. And we allow our sufferings to then become an identity marker over us as though, and what we're communicating inherently is that it has some sort of, of, of degree of ownership that is over us. As though cancer is the one who is identifying who I am. No, it's not. I'm bought by another it is his name, and it is his mantle that I carry. So be careful that your identity is not in your sufferings, but rather in God, in God alone. It is true of the people of God 3,500 years ago as they're living under the heavy hand of Pharaoh. It is true now for the lady who's just now repenting in New Delhi, India, and coming to Christ for the first time. They are a child of God. That is their identity. And for us sitting here right now, that is our identity. 
is that we are children of God, that we are my people, says God. So it is coming from, from your God. And the same thing, we like to think we doubt the goodness of God or, or God's love for us. When the trials or afflictions begin, when we're told that we're going to be carried off into exile, not only are we remain the people of God, but he remains our God. He is still their God, even in the midst of his wrath. He is still their God. Try, try to comprehend this love of God. That even though he is bringing punishment upon his people, he still loves them. Fathers, be careful how you discipline your children. That is not just wrath. It's this love is still there in the midst of it. He is still their God. And he is still our God. Okay, so we've seen the, the root of our comfort is in our identity. Um, and now we're going to see this comfort coming in the midst of affliction as well. So let's, let's read verses 1 and 2 again. Verse 1, comfort, comfort, my people says your God. Verse 2, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand. From who? From the Lord's hand. Double for all her sins. So this speak tenderly, it's, it's literally just speak to the heart. Speak to the heart. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, Hannah is speaking to her own heart in terms of a meditation. She's meditating, speaking to her own heart. Isaiah is calling us and these other prophets to speak to the heart. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Speak to your own heart. Meditation, speak to another's heart, is to bring comfort to them. And you're crying about, about these three things. One, that the warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she's received double from the Lord's hand. That her warfare has ended, that basically that her affliction has come to a, to a full end here. And, and one of the Targums, Jonathan has it as, that her captivity is filled up. Her captivity by the people is filled up. That her warfare has ended. The affliction has been filled up. Her iniquity is pardoned, and it's pardoned because it's atoned for. It's not just, not just turning away from sin, but this full measure that is poured out in the people endure this punishment of God. And through all of that, they have what? What do they have? They have comfort. Comfort through all of this. And they've received double for their sins. It'll be, it'll be paid in full. You see this in Babylon in, in Revelation 18. That she pays double for her sins. So do you, do you, do you, is it sinking in? I hope it is. That through all of this, before the affliction comes, through the affliction and afterwards, we have this comfort that is coming to us from God. How amazing is that? We, we, we suffer and it makes us feel alone as though there's, it's, it's, it's isolating, isn't it? We're depressed and we want the lights off. We want to be alone. That's what we want. But no, no, in the midst of all of that, 
Even if it is given to you by the hand of God, which it probably is. You have comfort in the midst of all of that. All right, so we see in verse 1 that our identity is what is kind of the bedrock then of our comfort. And you should pray that this atonement and this pardoning of sin would not come from bulls or goats, that it would come from Christ. That this affliction that is filled up wouldn't be filled up in you, but that it would be filled up in Christ, that you would look to him and to him alone. And then finally, we're going to see here in verse 3, 4, and 5, the comfort we have in Christ. Verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Why? For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. There's a great cry of this lone voice to prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord. And throughout all of the history of God's people, it has been them who have been traveling into the promised land. Do you, do you catch that? It's been Abraham who's been traveling. It's been the Israelites out of Egypt who have been traveling. It's been them going to the sacred places. But now what you have is God coming to his people. And so you have it. God is coming to them in the state of their brokenness and affliction. And it's in the wilderness that, that he's coming to them. So everything must be prepared. Is there a valley? What do we do? Well, we fill it up. Is there a mountain? Well, then bring it down. Uneven ground? Smooth it out. This was actually a practice of the eastern kings of royalty. Their people would go out before them and create or prepare roads as they went through the desert. They wouldn't just wing it and go, but no. The people would prepare the way for the king, for royalty to come. And for 700 years now, these words were lingering, waiting, holding in the mouths of God's people, waiting for someone to speak them. And then finally, there comes a man, a cousin of Christ, who's clothed himself in camel hair, and sustained on locust and wild honey. And he uses this Old Testament quote to have the people prepare their hearts for the coming king. As he says in, in Matthew 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready for the, the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Do whatever it takes, John the Baptist is pulling these verses out. And John the Baptist is saying, do whatever it takes to prepare your heart for the coming king. This is one of the few quotations that's actually used in all four of the Gospels. Psalm 118 is another one, using the triumphal entry. Something about these verses is absolutely critical for every one of the Gospel authors to correctly frame and portray the life and the work of Christ. 
It is critical that you prepare your hearts to see Christ. Unless your heart is prepared, maybe you'll hear about him, but you won't fully comprehend him. You will never know him. You will never trust him. You will never love him. Unless your heart is prepared, pray to God that he would prepare your hearts. That you would behold Christ in a way that you never have before. So look at, the, look at the text and just drive it home here. And then wilderness, prepare the way. What? Prepare the way of the Lord. This proclamation of command and, and comfort. It only has one headwater and that is Christ. The people, their affliction was filled up but they had one comfort. And what is it? It was in Christ. And they waited and waited and waited and waited as the people of God. That he is enough. And you do miscarriage after miscarriage. What is it? Christ. Christ is your comfort. And the depression that makes it hard to get out of bed. What is your comfort? It is Christ. Maybe God is opening your eyes and you've realized your whole life has just been vanity up until this point. What is your comfort? Christ. Christ is your comfort. All right. So what do we do when it seems like it's not enough, right? Let's just be honest. Let's not just do a little Jesus juke and then call it good. And what do we do when it's not enough, though? What do you do when you believe in Christ and trust in him fully for your comfort, but you're still depressed. What do you do? What I'm not going to say is that you lack faith and you need to have more faith. That's not it. But maybe, maybe God is doing something in your heart to let you see that this world is not your home. Even though Christ is our comfort, and will be a comfort. Maybe it's not fully realized at this moment. And here's why it's okay to have this tension. Look back at verse 5 here. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And it is. It's revealed in Christ. Christ is the glory of God the Father. When Isaiah is in the throne room of God and he sees the glory of God, whose glory is every John 12? We'll preach on it probably a year and a half or so. But whose glory is it? It's the glory of Christ. Hebrews 1, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact, exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Christ is the glory of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him and through him all things were created, and things in heaven and things in earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. He is... Before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead. And in him 
everything might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things in heaven or things on earth, by making peace through the blood upon the cross. Christ is the glory of God. Okay? Christ is the glory of God. Next part of this verse. And all flesh shall see it together. Here's the tension. Here's where we're coming back. Has this happened yet? Has this happened yet? The first coming of Christ, you have Joseph and Mary, maybe a theatrical drummer boy, if that's not enough. And you have some shepherds and then some magi coming maybe a year or so later. Takes a while to come from the east. Has all flesh been gathered together to see the glory of God in Christ? No. You've tasted and you've seen that God is good, but you haven't seen anything yet. Think of the Mount of Transfiguration. We begin to see the glory of God. God, Christ reveals it just a little bit, just kind of opens up the curtain just a little bit. And for Peter, he's going, oh, hey, I'm good. Let's just stay here. Let's build some tabernacles or some booths. And we'll just settle here. I'm good. For we see now in a mirror dimly. But when he comes, we shall see him face to face. So let's circle back, back then to our comfort. Comfort, comfort, says my people. You say it's not enough. Well, just wait. Just wait. Christ is your comfort. Though you may not see it or fully realize it now. The people of God hearing this, they had to wait 700 years. 700 years for the coming Messiah. And here we are in the final week of Advent. Church history, final week of Advent, we typically celebrate that Christ is coming again. We not just look back that he has come, but we look forward to him coming again. Go to the end of Isaiah. In 65, he says, For a time is coming when, behold, I will create the new heavens and the new earth, for the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever. Comfort, comfort, my people. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, the people who I brought through affliction. I will rejoice in them and I will be glad in them. You want comfort? There's your comfort. It's not an alleviation of everything that presses in upon us. That's not comfort. Comfort is seeing Christ face to face and dwelling with him forever. And we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit now if you believe in Christ. So we have that in part now, but don't doubt the goodness of God because you don't have it in full measure now. Just wait. Be patient. Long for him to come. As John says in Revelation 21, he will it's going to happen. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That is when you have your comfort. God can sustain you through this time now in the midst of affliction. Absolutely. But the comfort comes when Christ comes again. So what do we do? 
briefly, we're running long. Number one, be patient, as we said. Be patient. Don't think that Christ is not enough because he hasn't come back yet again. You still struggle with sin, still struggle with sorrow. Absolutely. We're still wrapped in this flesh. We're still enveloped in this flesh. But he will come and he will redeem his people. You realize how we're, it's kind of the second verse, same as the first. The people of God throughout the Old Testament are longing for the Messiah to come. What are we now? We're just longing for the Messiah to come again. Waiting patiently, knowing he will sustain us and carry us through until that day. Be patient. Number one, be patient. Number two, do not, do not partake in the comfort of this world. It is a struggle and it is a battle for your soul. And you might be able to take momentary fleeting comfort in this world, but it comes at a cost. And the cost usually comes at is eternal comfort. Momentary joy, giving up eternal joy. Achieving some momentary comfort so that you may have, not have eternal comfort. And the only way this happens is that we're with, able to withhold from the comfort of the world that's calling out is when you know who you are. Is when you know that we are the people of God. We are a different people, and we have a different home. So don't settle in the wilderness. You're on your way to the promised land. Don't settle in the wilderness and try to find comfort here. The true comfort is when we cross the Rubicon, across the Jordan, when there is no turning back, and we shall see God and be with him forever. So be patient. Don't seek comfort from this world. And finally, prepare your hearts for the coming Christ. Christ has come as a lamb and he will return as a lion. He has come as a lamb of sacrifice, but he will return as a lion to exact judgment upon the enemies of God who are living in rebellion against him. Many, many people will have the words of Christ in their ears. But when he comes like a thief in the night, the words of Christ in their ears will never have settled into their hearts and it will be too late. Prepare your hearts for the coming of Christ and pray to God and trust in him that you may be prepared for this coming king who will bring all comfort. Let us pray. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your son. And we pray that you would prepare our hearts for him to come again, that we would not be caught off guard, God, that we would have our houses in order, our hearts prepared, God, that you would subdue every mountain of pride and fill up every valley of rebellion against you. And even though we think it might be smooth, God, that you would make it even smoother to prepare the way for your son to come, God as we come now in turn to partake of communion, God, let us come with joyful and longing hearts, longing to partake of the great wedding feast to come when we shall be fully satisfied, we shall be fully comforted, 
There shall be no more tears, no more sorrow, for we shall see you face to face. God, let that be our great comfort. Amen. Amen.